Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. The University at Buffalo School of Social Work is making a difference every day. Through the generation and transmission of knowledge, promotion of social justice, and service to humanity. We offer MSW and PhD programs, continuing education programs and credits, online courses, licensure exam preparation, professional seminars and certificates, and much, much more. To learn more about the UB School of Social Work, please visit www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. This is your host, Ajua Robinson. Lenore Walker is known as the mother of the battered woman syndrome. Her pioneering research in the late 1970s named the psychological phenomenon that has assisted millions of people in understanding why battered women have such difficulty in getting out of domestic violence relationships. Today, Dr. Walker is the principal psychologist at Walker & Associates, providing assessment for and consultation with attorneys whose clients have been involved in trauma from domestic violence. Dr. Walker is also director of the Domestic Violence Institute and a full professor of psychology at Nova Southeastern University where she coordinates the forensic psychology concentration in the doctoral program. Charles Ewing is a forensic psychologist, attorney, and a SUNY Distinguished Service Professor at the State University of New York at Buffalo, where he serves as Vice Dean for Legal Skills at the Law School. Dr. Ewing is the author or co-author of 10 books and over 70 articles related to violent behavior, dangerousness, expert testimony, and other forensic psychology issues. He has been honored for his contributions to forensic psychology and the field of criminal law education. Doctors Walker and Ewing spoke with Dr. Nancy Smith, professor and dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, about current challenges to a trauma-informed approach to the health and safety of children posed by a broken family court system, a political system of mental disorder typology, and a co-opted father's rights movement. I'm Nancy Smith here at the University of Buffalo, and we have Dr. Chuck Ewing and Dr. Lenore Walker. Chuck Ewing is here in the faculty at the University of Buffalo Law School and is going to be uh, working with me to interview Dr. Walker. And Dr. Walker, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Why don't we start off, Dr. Ewing? I know you've been thinking about a lot of things in prepping for this interview. Oh, yes. Well, first, Lenore, let me tell you what you already know, and that is how much you've influenced my professional work and therefore my life. So it's a great honor and pleasure to speak with you today. And I must say vice versa, Chuck. You, you always know what's going on, especially in the legal areas. I like our encounters from time to time when we do get together. Same. One of the things that has impressed me of late is I've noticed, or I would say over the last decade or so, maybe even a little bit longer, a different kind of use of battered woman syndrome in the court. I know that when you pioneered in this area, you were doing a lot of battered woman homicide cases 
And that's initially what attracted me to the area. But as I've worked in the area now for a couple of decades, it seems to me that the work has shifted and, and broadened a lot. And I wondered if you had seen that too, finding yourself involved in cases outside the battered spouse homicide area and more into custody, divorce, child abuse, child sexual abuse kinds of cases. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd like to believe that the homicide cases are not being prosecuted as much as they used to be, that many of them will accept a plea to a lesser charge rather than a murder charge, but perhaps a manslaughter charge. And I've even had some where they've null-prossed the case because they really, under the police and, and the prosecutor's office, really understood that it was a case of self-defense. So we don't need to be in the court if that's where they're going with it, if they understand it. Yeah, that's what I've, I'd like to think that that reflects a better understanding of domestic violence more generally in society. I get called. I, I don't have the opportunity or time to do as many of the cases as I would like, but I get called a lot on... Uh, cases involving divorce, grounds for divorce, parental alienation, child custody issues involving battered woman syndrome. I wondered if that's been your experience as well. I could fill my one day a week that I run my private practice because, you know, the other four days, as you are, I'm a professor now at NOVA, I could fill my whole entire week with testifying in child custody disputes. I really do believe that the family court system is broken in this country, but also in other countries that I lecture in, and that we're just not recognizing the damage that is done, the psychological damage that's done to children and to mothers who try to protect them and fathers who are demanding their rights without really understanding how they need to parent the child. Do you see much use of the so-called parental alienation syndrome in your work? Well, I do see a lot of people who want to use parental alienation syndrome. Now, uh, the proponents have dropped the syndrome, and they're now calling it parental alienation disorder. And there's a, a large group that um, have petitioned the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, uh, fifth edition <laughs> task force, to include it as a disorder of childhood. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. What's mm -hmm. your thought about that? I know that over the years, you've been involved heavily with DSM, sometimes successfully, sometimes not successfully. Absolutely. And, and I wondered what you thought of the effort to include this parental alienation disorder. Yeah, I would love to hear about that from both of you because I'm sitting here trying to figure out how this could be a mental disorder. But knowing that the DSM is as much a political process as anything else, I'd love to hear your take on it. Well, I think that's exactly the truth. The DSM is indeed a political process, and it may be working to our uh, favor in this particular case because they have to have at least a little bit of research that shows that it's actually a disorder. And while there's no question that in the middle of a con highly contested divorce with parents that don't get along, there's all kinds of behaviors that are embarrassing <laughs> and shameful that happened to the child, but it doesn't necessarily produce a disorder. And of course, the battered woman community and the sexual abuse community is very nervous that should it be labeled as a disorder rather than as a phenomenon that takes place during the 
pendency of the litigation, then people aren't going to talk about the abuse. It's going to drive it right back into the closet again when they go through divorce. And already you can see it starting to happen where lawyers are advising their clients not to try to protect their child because if they do, they're going to lose custody totally. Well, that's what I was trying to think about from the standpoint of a woman who has a child who, you know, I believe has been sexually abused by, by her dad and I'm going to try to protect that child, how is that going to not look like I'm alienating their relationship when I'm trying to protect? It's a hard distinction to sort of figure out. Exactly. And the people who are being asked to figure it out, judges and attorneys and many psychologists that are not trained in trauma, don't know how to figure it out, but they see behavior that is not nice behavior, and they say, oops, that's what's causing it, rather than looking at the possibility that the child's reactions are due to, and these are children who don't want to be with the other parent, and it's almost always the father that the child, at least in the cases I work on, that they don't want to be with, and these are fathers who have been violent, and the child knows it. Um, They may not have been violent towards the child themselves, but they have been violent towards the mother, and the child knows that as well. And so even if they weren't sexually abused, and you sometimes cannot prove one way or the other, the fact is the child needs to be protected, and the father needs to develop better parenting skills. But we never get to that point because we're busy fighting out whether who, who should have 50% or 51% time. And, and part of why I say the system is broken is because so much of it is also tied to how much child support money gets paid. So the more time the father requests with the child, the less child support payment he has to make. It's a system that really hasn't been examined in a very long time. I know the financial part was often tied together with the amount of time spent because so many fathers were abandoning children back in the 1970s, but that's no longer occurring. I wonder how much good as psychologists we really do in a broken system like that. I'd be interested in your take on that. It seems to me sometimes we may actually be co-opted and we may become part of the problem rather than a solution to the problem. Well, I see that all the time. I just wrote an article that's published in the Journal of Child Custody about the damage from if parental alienation disorder does get into the DSM-5 and had to tone it down because the many of whom are colleagues that I work with are appeasing the court system. There's fear that the judges won't read it if it really says what they don't want to know that their system is broken. Or if they do want to know it, they they believe that they have the way to fix it. What do you think needs to happen to fix the system right now? You know, I don't know. (laughs) I sometimes think we need to go back to the tender years doctrine. But, you know, some of the people that are accused of parental alienation syndrome are the fathers as well. And there are some men who are doing a wonderful job raising children and should continue to do that. I really don't know how you separate it out. We live in a world where people band together for a variety of reasons around one cause, and I think that's what's happened in this area. Ironically, I see kind of a tie, a loose tie between parental alienation syndrome and battered woman syndrome, and it's this. People ask me, do I believe in parental alienation? And I say, hell yes, I've seen it. But then they say to me, well, do you believe that there's a parental alienation syndrome? 
And I say no because I haven't seen empirical evidence to suggest that there, there is a legitimate syndrome. And I think back to 20 years ago or even more, and I'm sure you go back even further than that with us, that people would have said the same thing about battered woman syndrome. We all have worked with many battered women, but you really coined the term and, and really led the fight for recognition of something called battered woman syndrome. And I wonder how important is it to call something a syndrome in, in order to have it accepted by the courts? But secondly, is the term syndrome abused and misused? I'm uh, thinking also of uh, child sexual abuse accommodation syndrome. It's, syndrome has almost become a nasty word. Well, that's true. I mean, and, and we have all kinds of uh, syndromes with an attempt to get premenstrual syndrome as a defense uh, for a murderous uh, rage that somebody might have gone into and committed homicide. It depends on, on what you need it for. I think I was very naive in those days. There was so little literature out there about battered women, and all of the, the literature that I found talked about women as being masochists and the women who got battered, there was something wrong with them. And so my goal was to try to make it clear that whatever was wrong with them, and certainly there are psychological issues that uh, we work with, um, it comes from the battering, not from the person's intrapsychic uh, makeup. I agree. I note, though, that it's interesting that I think you were able to succeed to the extent that you were able to early on, partly because of that word, syndrome because it gave it legitimacy, I happen to believe it warranted. As you well know, having fought the battles in court personally, there were a lot of people who disagreed with that. Do you feel like that's changed, that you don't have to fight that battle anymore? The battles are different. You're still scrapping it out in the courts. They're very different battles. I think back in those days when we were talking about psychological self-defense, a concept that I truly believe in, but the courts have never. You were certainly one of the proponents, and I was just nervous that the courts would, it would go so broad they wouldn't accept anything. Could you folks say a little more about psychological self-defense, what that is for a, a non-legal audience here? Well, from my perspective, and I sort of built this on Lenore's work, I proposed that in these battered woman homicide cases that the courts consider not only the physical battering, but the emotional harm that was being done to battered women, and that they recognize something that I call psychological self-defense. And that is, I mean, I, I had to define it fairly narrowly, but essentially someone who, if they didn't use deadly force, they're selfhood, their psychological self was threatened with annihilation. And as Lenore indicates, it, it never it never took off, it never caught on. I think in some of the cases that I've been involved in, and perhaps some of yours, Lenore, the jury bought that, even though it was never really presented to them as a viable legal defense. They understood what I was saying, or they understood what you or other experts were saying along those lines. But I, I, have, I have to tell a story that you may or may not remember, but when I first talked to you about this, and I asked you if you had read what I wrote, and you said yes, and you thought it was great, and I asked you why, and you said something to the effect of, this made you look a lot saner. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that at all, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure you do, and it's accurate. <laughs> yes, I, 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 I remember it vividly because... 
I, I took it as, as a compliment. It was meant, if I said it that way, I'm sure it was a compliment. Uh, because it's true that so many, we, we have um, suicides of battered women, many of whom we never will know that occurred because they need some control over what's happening to them and the only control they see themselves as having is to kill because he's going to kill them and they don't want to give him that ultimate control over them. Yeah, or they end up in psychiatric hospitals. Exactly. commitment. And you know where I see it all the time where it really, really would be helpful is in juveniles who kill an abusive parent because for many of them, they don't do it at the point of battering incident. They do it at the point that the parent grounds them in a horrendous way, like, you know, you're never going out again for the rest of your life. And the youth feels totally annihilated because the task of adolescence, of course, is to build relationships with other peers. I see that in in those cases, and they're very, very difficult to prove and difficult to get juries to believe that these kids deserve not to be prosecuted as murderers, but rather as at least a form of self-defense. And part of another problem with that is that many of these kids are also very psychologically damaged. And so the average layperson is frightened that if they find not guilty of a homicide or a lower level, or they put them in juvenile rather than in adult court, that they're going to be let loose and rampage over the community. So public safety is a big issue as well with those cases. Less so, of course, with the battered women who kill well, in self-defense. What I found, and I don't know if you have too, is that killing your parent is sort of the, the last taboo. I mean, it, you can do whatever you want pretty much in our society, and you can throw yourself on the mercy of the court. But killing a parent, even an abusive parent, it's a tough sell to try to explain that to a jury. Yes. The other tough sell is when a mother kills the baby. Those cases have similar dynamics in them in that the at least the cases I work on and maybe the ones you do, Chuck, these are women who have psychological issues where the baby is never considered as a separate person. They're considered as part of themselves. And so in a sense, they're really killing themselves, a part of themselves by doing it. But I've also had some cases where they've been battered women and the women are terrified that the batterer is also going to hurt the baby. And so they do it out of some misguided but understandable sense of protection of the child. That makes me think of another issue, too, that be interested in your take on. And is I've seen fewer of these cases, but I, but I still see a fair number of so-called failure-to-protect cases where abused women are indicted or charged along with their abusers for failing to protect their children from the abuser. Yes. I also, I, I wonder why, but thinking about it, I also see a fewer number of those cases than I used to see. I'm not quite sure why. I guess I would hope that it's due to your work and the other work that's been done to educate the public and maybe prosecutors as well to understand what's going on in those cases. It's interesting that what we are seeing here in Florida is an increased number of cases of batterers who kill the woman and the children 
at the point of separation. And that's very scary. We just had four in the last month in Broward County, which uh, is where Fort Lauderdale is located. And one of the other uh, professors here on the faculty with me at NOVA, Southeastern University, has uh, he's also a police officer. And so we're going to be doing some research on these kinds of, of homicide, suicide cases and, and total family annihilation cases. I know from your work that you've often said and you've demonstrated that uh, probably the most dangerous time for uh, an abused woman is when she is trying to leave. And so I, I think that's, that's a, an interesting connection. I've done work on a lot of familicide cases, but I, I must ign- admit that I haven't made that connection. So I think that's, that's really valuable work to pursue. Well, thank you. I, we're very interested in, and police uh, officers here are as well. We have a wonderful unit that cross different communities where we do a lot of training. Uh, Dr. Van Assel does a lot of the training in hostage negotiations. But in many of these cases, they don't recognize the seriousness of them. And so they don't train the officers that are going to go out to these cases in the hostage negotiating. Some of them happen so fast you couldn't even get there even if you had the unit. They're very scary cases. I don't know if there's an upswing or you just never know exactly because there's so many other variables that can interact. The economy certainly is one of them. And there's also the role as the media covers the some studies on media contagion effects that you get with certain types of suicide and I think homicide as well. I'm curious what your experience and what your thoughts are about how knowledgeable the, say, family court system really is about trauma and its impact. Their amount of knowledge, in my experience, is minimal. Very minimal. Every now and then I come across a judge who really has been interested in it. But for most of them, judicial training, I think, goes against a lot of what you have to believe. Uh, domestic violence is counterintuitive. It's, it's just not fair, like you want to believe in fairness. And family court is a court of equity. It's supposed to be fair. <laughs> But it's not fair if you say this person gets 100% decision-making over the children and this person gets zero. That may not be fair, but when you can't, one person holds up back and doesn't make appropriate decisions, it's not, children grow up too quickly. It's not time enough to work that out. And none of our methodology, I mean, no mediation, no parenting coordinators, none of, I mean, we keep building new and new training for professionals to work with these folks. And it's always the same folks. It's always the folks that have what um, Janet Johnson likes to call the family discord people. But they're really domestic violence people. I don't know what's happening in other areas of the country, but I can tell you with the budget cuts down here with all the police departments and prosecutors' offices, they're losing the very personnel that we've trained who are the, the domestic violence or the victim witness people. And so we don't have people. We're training people to be fair when we really need them to be to recognize danger recognize danger and the impact of the power imbalance that's been there with the trauma and what that does to people. 
Right. Now, more and more court personnel are recognizing domestic violence, you know, intimate partner violence, but they're not, they don't know what to do with it. If they don't have hard evidence that a child has been physically or sexually abused, they don't see the impact on the child psychologically. And I just read an article recently that talked about the higher percentage of cases of serious mental illness, including schizophrenia, that we see in children who have experienced child sexual abuse. I think it came from a a large study of about 2,000 cohorts from Australia. So, I mean, those of us who work in the area, we know that. But it's very difficult to get the courts to understand it. I get told all the time, but he didn't beat up the child. The child didn't have to go to the hospital. There's, as my understanding, though, now a growing body of literature that indicates that even just witnessing domestic violence, the psychological impacts of that are actually more severe than of being physically abused themselves. They certainly can be. The impact is is very serious. And, of course, we see it in many of the cases that get labeled parental alienation or the cases that get labeled chosen by a proxy. That's another label that is used, I see, as a defense. I don't know if you see it, Chuck. This is not physical Munchausen where the parent is found injecting bad things into the child or doing physical harm to the child. This is psychological Munchausen where it's claimed that usually the mother is claiming that there's child sexual abuse and because they can't find uh, clear physical evidence of it, they then claim that she's doing it just because she wants the psychological attention. We're combating all these defenses, and I'm sure when we, unless the court's really willing to go back and take away those presumptions of joint custody, I mean, I think the presumption of joint custody and the presumption of the friendly parent should get more responsibility are two very damaging presumptions in the law. They were designed, I think, in a a positive way, but not everybody can do joint raising of a child. It should be determined on a case-by-case basis. I don't know how much either of you are familiar with the international movement for child rights, but I'm curious about, this is, again, a political process that is partly influenced by people coming together, I think you said earlier, to represent their interests, and it seems that there is a, a movement underway to better represent the interests of children. I wonder what your thoughts are about that in terms of how that could help or hurt the types of situations that we've been talking about. I have heard about it through the International Women Judges Association because they've been promoting it. It's in in several countries now, including Israel. And one of my good friends is the judge who uh, chaired the committee that rewrote all of the laws in six major areas to give children legal rights. And she says it's working very well. I think, you know, without trying it, you don't see some of the possible downsides, but I'm very much a proponent of it. Here in South Florida, we do have, uh, we give children legal standing in two situations. One, if their parents are, uh, their rights are about to be terminated, and the other is if the child is about to be sent to a residential treatment center. 
So they are allowed to be represented, and uh, our legal aid office represents them. I chair the forensic concentration here at uh, CPS, and we, our practicum students, work for legal aid in those cases. So they actually will do evaluations and at no cost, I might add, and will write reports and, if requested, testify in dependency. Usually it's in dependency courts. And the judges are very supportive to what we have to say. Sometimes we agree with the Department of Family Services, but sometimes we disagree with them. And we do the evaluations for DCF as well. We're actually doing them for the Guardian Lion program that works with DC, but practically we're actually working with the DC workers. So I think that you need many more people, not just doing the evaluations, but providing trauma-informed treatment. And I know our state has issued a requirement for training, and we've been asked to do some of the training. But, you know, if you have a broken system, all the training you do isn't going to fix those presumptions. It isn't going to fix the family court judge. Our family court and our dependency court are separate, but in many communities, they are the same. The training that you do, I assume from what you're saying, is primarily mental health professionals and not legal professionals, or is it both? Well, it's interesting. It's it's mostly mental health professionals trying to get to the legal professionals. In June, I did a, a training that the courthouse, the dependency judges put together on trauma. And I had about an hour and a half to talk about trauma. There were a good 700 people who were there. I just came back from Washington, D.C., where they're actually going to be emphasizing trauma and justice as a focus for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. So they're interested in, in bringing in trauma-informed into the court. Well, I think that's a good step in the right direction. We, we run uh, two mental health courts here one for misdemeanors and one for felonies, and we bring trauma into that as well. We work very closely with the judges. And we're in the jails where our students are providing a, some people would call it a manualized treatment program called the STEP program or Survivor Therapy Empowerment Program. And it's a 12-session program. It's been a really interesting challenge to adapt it to a jail population because they're in and out of the jail all the time. So when you say 12 sessions, you're not going to start with one and go all the way through to 12. Some people are going to come in at three. Some people are going to come in at seven. It's been a very interesting challenge. And we're now modifying the program in the juvenile detention center. That's even a bigger challenge because most of the kids are only there for three weeks. Have you found it that our immigration laws, and particularly the way they're being enforced, have an effect on domestic violence, child abuse, spouse abuse, and the way it is or isn't reported and is or isn't handled by the courts? Well, I haven't, yes and no. Where I'm finding it is that many people pled guilty to a child abuse charge many years ago, and they're just now being detained by the immigration authorities. And they had no idea that that was going to impact on their ability to remain in this country. I testify a lot in immigration hearings where somebody's married to an abusive partner, 
and they then use the Violence Against Women Act. You know, I've seen some abuses of it, but most of the time it's really worked quite well. And this is specifically in immigration court? Yes. Well, immigration court really can't use it as much. For example, I've, I've tried to introduce my testimony in asylum hearings. We have not had great luck with that, although we're having better results. It's like in the beginning with battered women's syndrome. The testimony is denied, and then it goes up on appeal, and the immigration court are allowing it, ruling that it has to come in. Well, okay, let me just sort of see if I can recap my understanding of sort of where things are in this boy, this very challenging area. We have a very broken system in family court, and while there sounds like there's a huge need for educating the court personnel, legal personnel involved in this, there were some essential value conflicts between, say, a trauma-informed perspective and the presumptions within the legal system as it relates to family court and custody cases and other family court cases. Would that be correct to say? Yes, I think it would be very correct. So maybe the best we could hope for is educating people who then recognize a need to rework the system in some way, but they're not going to have a desire to rework the system if they don't see this conflict. And the work that you've been following of some of your international colleagues to rewrite laws to protect child rights may be helpful or hopeful step in this direction, although it's that still stays with the presumptions of the system. It just adds a new stakeholder in, a new set of rights to consider. But certainly, as I listen to both of you talk, I'm left with this impression that children are the ones who lose out in these situations the most. I think that's very true. And of course, these children grow up to be adults. And there's some early research, and it hasn't been replicated, but it's still important to think about. And that is in one study, boys who witnessed or were exposed to their fathers abusing their mothers were 700 times more likely to use violence in their own lives when they grew up. And if they also were abused, it raised the risk to 1,000 times the child who was not so exposed or abused. Now, I mean, any other disease that had that kind of statistics attached to it, we would quarantine people immediately. Here, we give the abuser power, continued power over the child and, and the mother. How far behind the curve do you think the United States is, if at all? Are there other, are there other nations that are doing a better job of this than we are? Well, I think we're doing a good job in certain aspects. I think we have been doing a pretty good job with with restraining orders. We've been doing a pretty good job in sheltering the number of battered women that we can afford to shelter than other countries. I think the children's rights group have a number of countries. The, the I know about Israel. I know Australia is one of the countries as well that has attempted to pass some of the laws. So, you know, there are other countries that are taking it seriously. On the other hand, there are many other countries that don't even except that domestic violence is illegal. We're pretty far along in that particular area. Still a long way to go. Oh, we've got such a long way to go. One of my uh, good friends often would say, you know, you have two eyes, one to look backwards and see how far we've come, and the other to look forward that says, oh, gosh, we still have a long way to go. Third eye I would like to propose here would be (laughs) looking at what the current forces are in terms of how they're challenging us about where we need to go. And you said something earlier that I was curious about, groups of people organizing 
to sort of represent themselves, which is certainly part of what happens in a democracy all the time. Recognizing that you're not a political scientist, I would still like your opinion because of the position you've been in. I think you're uniquely qualified to talk about your observations. What role has the father's rights movement in this country played in sort of laying the groundwork for what you're trying to deal with in the courts at this point? I think the father's rights movement allowed itself to be co-opted by abusive parenting. And that's very sad. As a feminist, we have been absolutely wanting fathers to take a good part in child raising. Because if we don't share our child raising tasks very selfishly, we're never going to be able to get women to be able to take in equal positions in the workplace. It's absolutely essential. We also know it's healthy for children to have two good parents who are doing the work. And I see that in many educated families, particularly college-educated families, really try to share a lot of the parenting responsibilities. So the Father's Rights Movement was one that so many of us supported initially because it was getting the courts to accept that fathers can raise children just like mothers can raise children, etc. But abusive fathers have taken it over. All you have to do is go on the internet and look on some of the websites and the hate and anger that is expressed there is frightening. It's very frightening. And it's pushing many psychologists right out of this field. I have testified on behalf of two different psychologists now in two different states where licensing boards, psychology licensing boards, have had grievances filed by fathers' rights groups where these people hadn't even seen the child. They just give people who come to this website ammunition, and it's unfortunately used by people who have either mental health problems themselves or are um, just very angry, vindictive people. I was curious about that because I heard some pieces of that from colleagues, and it reminds me a little bit of, of what I remember happening around the false memory syndrome movement and therapists who were working with adult survivors of abuse, and that in many areas of the country, people just stopped taking those cases on. Because, and we find that here, too. Yes, and that it sounded like there might be some elements of that happening now around abused kids who were, you know, in these custody sorts of situations. And so what you have is a class of people that start to be de denied access to care because of these larger political forces. And I think that is true, and I think that is happening. I see that in our students. I don't know if you see it in some of your students. They come in very eager you know, to work in these fields, and then boom. <laughs> They don't. Yes, I think I have seen some of that, and, and it, it scares me. The, the, uh, the social worker in me that wants to fight for social justice issues wonders if there isn't a legal way to take that on. <laughs> some sort of. <laughs> no, I would like to do that too. <laughs> because it's uh, one of the things we have done is attempted to educate some of the people who serve on the licensing board. We published a book called Surviving the Licensing Board Complaint, and that's one of the areas we really did uh, look at in it. Have the number of those complaints really gone up in recent uh, years? Well, I think there are more in that area 
You know, child custody and child protection area has always been an area for complaints. I don't know if it's gone up or not, but certainly we're seeing more of it. I've pretty well stopped doing those kinds of evaluations because, partly because of that, partly just because of the emotional wear and tear and aging on my part. But uh, it's they, they are very, very difficult cases. And I think that were I to ever do another one, it would be only as a witness for the court. Yeah, I'm not sure that that protects you, Chuck. What I found is the most protective is you don't do it yourself. You have two or three psychologists' opinions so that it isn't just one person. They have to take on two or three, and that's that's a little bit more complex. I think that's a great idea. Obviously, the cost is much is, uh, It's outrageous, of course. So it is denying people the right. Well, we have covered a huge amount of territory here. I'm curious if there's anything that you would like to add, uh, Dr. Walker? Or... I don't think so. I think we really have covered quite a lot. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us, and thank you, Dr. Ewing, as well. I feel especially privileged to be able to have both of you here. So. <laughs> well, that's been a pleasure for me as well, and so great that you're taking on a project like this. Great. We take them on, and then we see where they can go. And this is a particularly important podcast, I think, so I'm looking forward to getting this out and getting feedback both from people interested in social work, but also, I hope, in law to get the word out there a little more about the important work that you're both doing, actually, but especially the important line of work that you've been doing for so many years. Thank you so much, Lenore. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. It was great. The questions are just so so right, right where they should be, so it's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Drs. Lenore Walker and Charles Ewing discuss current challenges to a trauma-informed approach to the health and safety of children posed by a broken family court system, a political system of mental disorder typology, and a co-opted father's rights movement. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.